All right. Hey, folks, this is Kevin Van Trump here. I'm doing another edition with my good friend Carter Williams uh, on your Outsourced Ag CTO, trying to put together some, some of our latest thoughts on what's happening in the world of ag tech. And uh, I'm just flying back. I had to do mobile day. I'm just flying back. I was visiting my daughter up in New York and plane got delayed and missed it uh, entirely. So how I'm driving the uh, car back. So doing it on a mobile, but I'll tell you what, things are busy in New York. It doesn't seem like much of a recession, Carter. What, what are you seeing out when you've been out and about? I've been uh, I've been getting ready for summer. So I've been thinking about, uh, normally in summer, I'm up in Michigan. So I'm, I'm aiming in that direction. But we are headed up to Chicago to S2G's running their summit to talk about ag innovation and, uh, and such. So we will be a lot of, uh, this end of this week in Chicago, there's a lot of, uh, ag tech conversation, but uh, I've been spending a lot of time talking to other technologists. I saw something really interesting. I, you know, I do defense stuff or did, but um, I saw something interesting where a guy has developed a satellite technology where he can build a dish in space for an antenna and then it will assemble the antenna using additive manufacturing, like stereolithography. So instead of, we used to do this in space where we'd assemble these things and send all the parts up. Now they can actually send a little kit and it will actually build the antenna in space out of like powder. And the reason I bring that up is I, one, it's super cool. And I, I'll see if I can find the video and share it with you, Kevin. But when I was in 1987, when I was still in engineering school, my dad got an opportunity to invest in stereolithography. And he's like, should I invest in this? And this is like using fluids to make things. Um, like I think you can now buy these devices for 600 bucks or something for home. My kid has one. Oh, does he? Mm -hmm. um, and I, oh, dad, we didn't do this, but I, uh, Lars, we've got Lars on today. Lars is with Earth Optics. You got it. Thanks. And uh, we'll we'll dive into that a little bit more. But feel feel free to what what uh, stereolithography thing did he buy? Oh, I, I forget the name brand, but he's a three D printing nut. So he's bought like every single like style of three D printer that's ever come out. So in 1987, my dad got a perspective saying and thinking, should I invest in this? This is going to be a thing. 1987. Then when I joined McDonnell Douglas, we bought one of the first production stereolithography machines to do wind tunnel test models on the F-18 ENF and NASP, which was the National Aerospace Plane. So we would we would build different models of different sorts out of these plastics and they're brittle. I've got one around here somewhere. I'm not sure where it is. But then Jerry Annis, who I worked for, who started Phantom Works at McDonnell Douglas, I said, we can build actual structural parts. And so in the mid nineties, we started thinking we would build a device that would sit in the aircraft carrier. And if we broke a part, you would just print it instead of having to keep a spare part. And then we actually started building structural parts, making those things so they're not brittle is sort of hard. And so by the late nineties, we invented So a lot of things your son's probably using today were stuff we developed in the 90s that finally became commercial. And then fast forward to this thing I saw on LinkedIn. Um, they built, they're gonna 
looking to build satellites in space where they just basically have your son's machine, but in a module in space, it just builds the whole thing. Um, so that's, call that a little more than 30 years, 30, 35 years to go from, here's a business idea of doing stereolithography to we're going to be in outer space using automation to build build things out of out of uh, dust. And so the reason I tell that story is if we're going to fiddle with agriculture and make agriculture better, um, it's a it's not a one year journey. It's a 20, 30 year journey. I'm just not sure where we are in that journey. Halfway through. Yeah, let's bring Lars into the conversation early, Carter. Hell, I mean, we're all invested in earth optics. We all, uh, you know, like the concept. I know we've done done some things with Lars in the past. So, I, you know, I think, hey, Lars, jump in on uh, anything we're talking about. I was curious, Carter, what are you seeing on the economy? Uh, just quick, you know, on that front. I'm not saying much of a slowdown anywhere I go. Uh, we were bidding on some property and some real estate, not uh, farm ground, but uh, looking at some different, uh, you know, real estate things. And hell, there's some realtors telling us here in Kansas City and just outside the surrounding areas, they've had, you know, some houses are still getting 30 offers, some 30% over ask, 40% over still. I mean, there's some crazy numbers happening again now that springtime's rolled out. So. I'm not seeing much of a slowdown. Like I said, when we were in New York, it was crazy busy and people looked like they were spending an awful lot of money. So I, I don't know. I'm not sure the Fed's going to get this thing slowed down anytime soon with the last uh, employment yeah, I, numbers either. What do you guys think? I, I'm putting one of my houses on the market. It's time to move. But uh, the agent said that, you know, she thought it was going to sell quickly. And it's, um, so that was nice to hear. Um, we've still got inversion, right? We've got, that's a little bit bigger, but I think that's usually a good sign that we're six months away from the end of a recession. Uh, we're seeing investors, we take a lot of investments, so we're seeing investors move forward, but they're cautious. They're all, I would say investors have cash and they're looking for the bottom. I, yeah, it feels like that to me. Yeah, I'm with you. I think it feels like everybody's sitting on the sidelines. Uh, waiting for everything to break and go lower but shit i don't i don't know i'm just not sure i it feels like back in this late 70s 80s when the feds fed had paused thinking they had kind of wrangled in inflation and shit then it took back off again you know and that happened two or three times that's how we got to that 17 18 percent uh number i don't i don't know i don't know if they're going to get this inflation under control I, I just don't know i mean i know things are have pulled back in in certain categories but other things still remain hot well, I think if you look Certainly at the look like, yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say if you look at the components of inflation, like most everything's come way down. The big one that's still stand out and it's not slowing down is housing. I was thinking of that the other day. Like the number one thing that drives housing inflation is high interest. You know, is, is high interest rates at a certain level, right? And so, uh, you know, the it's the, the exact same thing the Fed is using to bring down all those other components are what's still still driving the most significant remaining component of inflation that's yet to roll over. So I don't know. I don't know where that breaks down. Probably, probably in a recession, maybe it breaks down. But. Yeah. I don't know. And I know they say like 40% or even higher of every dollar spent is tied to housing, you know, 
Yeah. You know, whether it's remodeling a bathroom or doing a kitchen or something's tied to the housing market. So I don't, I don't know. I just don't see it. There's just, there's not nearly enough supply at the moment in housing for what you're seeing on the demand side. I know there are pockets where that's not the case, but certainly seems to be strong. And people don't, I was just listening to a guy talk uh, of a New York where talking, there was a hedge fund trader guy. He was talking that, you know, a lot of people feel somewhat richer than they ever have just because their home prices are higher than they've ever been. Their 401k is in really good shape. And now they're earning four, five, six percent interest in the bank. So, I mean, yeah. there's some theory that shit, people aren't going to slow down on this spending and Fed may have to keep ratcheting up as things move along here over the next few months. So I, I don't know. I was hoping we were on this. I was hoping the market was right and that we were going to pause and then, uh, you know, see the Fed start to cut rates in the next few months. But, uh, but I'm not sure of that. So it's definitely. Yeah. Uh, the only, I don't time. know whether it's true, but my, my dream state is that Powell will try to pull as much cash as he can out of the economy and then try to make sure that the economy is not crap. Uh, as we move into the elections. So, you know, try to push us a little more into recession so that we, he can pull more capital out and cut down the yeah. the Fed balance sheet and then start to slow, slow or reverse a little bit of the interest rate change by spring of, uh, as we move into the election, by next spring, so as we move into the election so that things are not bad. The problem is, as we as we apply that to ag tech, I mean, with everybody's operating loans, you know, the, the rates on the operating loans continuing to creep higher. If the Fed continues to move, the operating loans are going to go higher and higher. And at the same time, we've seen prices come down. You know, wheat's dramatically lower. Corn prices have taken a big hit. New crop beans taken a big hit. So it just it allows the farmer, or gives the farmer a lot less money uh, to be trying new things and you know and that's that's where it gets tricky and that's where I was proposing and said the last couple of years I said if there's ever a time to try new things it's in it's when things are good uh, when things turn things turn bad we just we just don't have the opportunities uh, you know and that's yeah so why are those prices going down well I mean just the simple fact that you know, it's similar to like quarterly earnings. You know, some of these companies, say like a PayPal, showed amazing growth during COVID, an unbelievable uh, strength, but they've not been able to duplicate those numbers as we come out. So it continues to get hammered. So say corn, for example, you know, you had the funds plow into the corn market. They were long some 300, 400,000 contracts at one time. And now the funds are net short corn. And, you know, it's just... Uh, <laughs> it's just kind of a market mechanism where you just have more sellers than you do buyers. And yeah. unfortunately that drives prices lower. And, and a lot of that was, you know, longs or bulls taking profits. So they were sellers. And at the same time, we've had yeah. an issue with demand. We haven't seen the growth in demand that we thought we would see in either corn or wheat. And even the bean story is a little bit lagging. Uh, they just haven't seen the growth in demand and on the supply side, you had problems in Argentina, but they were offset by record crop in Brazil. And you got Russia and Ukraine that uh, are still kicking out uh, exports at a really, really cheap price. So the U.S. exporters on the wheat side and the bean side are kind of ancillary suppliers. And you're getting cheap uh, exports out of Brazil and 
and out of brushes. So the you know you got I always tell everyone this, car you have a bull market like I said before, you gotta have three things. You gotta have the funds. They gotta they gotta wanna be bullish and optimistic, uh, the commodity market. Right now it's kinda of risk off because everybody's a bit hesitant thinking we're gonna have a global recession. That's why you haven't seen crude oil take off or anything. You know, it's actually been under a little pressure. So the funds aren't really on board with a global growth story, so they're not real bullish commodities. Either then, on top of that, you need a demand story. We don't really have one right now. Growth and demand, ethanol's kind of tapered off, leveled off, nothing real exciting there. Uh, you got livestock, the cattle herds, not very big. It's actually, you know, shrunk. You've got bird flu. You've got not a great feed number or outlook, and same type of story as you move over to uh, some of there. So you don't have a great demand story. And on the supply side, hell, U.S. weather looks pretty cooperative. We're off to a great start, and uh, we'll see how things go. But, you know, so just with prices being as high as they were, you got to continually, and those big bull markets, big bull markets got to be fed regularly. Big bulls like to eat all the time. We just haven't had the bullish headlines to keep a bull fed, uh, big bull fed. So, you know, we're kind of drifting back and just feels like lower highs and lower lows. So that is a worry on the ag tech adoption front. Because as we all know, if the farmers end up being underwater and farming with prices that are below profitability, it's going to be tough to get adoption on new things. Um, And I know that may be not the right thinking, but that's actually what ends up happening. And for everyone on the call, uh, more time I've traded throughout my life more times with the cost of corn, beans, or wheat being below the cost of production more than it's been above the cost of production, just to let everyone know. So, I mean, it is a, it's a tricky dynamic. And Lars, how are you guys, what do you, you know, how do you approach that when you see times get tough and, you know, maybe the farmer starts, because we have some guys saying if, if new crop corn falls, uh, you know, a whole lot further, or new crop beans, they're going to be, you know, underwater a little bit below the cost of production. So, Yeah, I'd say, so we certainly haven't seen that yet. We're we're a little bit insulated because we probably do maybe 25% of our business direct with growers and ranchers. The rest of it's through large, you know, multinational egg firms that are including us in, in some larger thing that they're doing, or we're part of some sustainability project or uh, effort being funded by a, you know, consumer package, a good company or a food retailer. Um, so 75% of our business is pretty insulated from that. And it's usually we're participating on the side that's providing new dollars through some sort of sustainability or carbon program to the grower. Um, but on that 25%, we haven't, uh, haven't see, seen a slowdown yet, but that, that certainly might happen. And it, is that market growing in terms of premium? The sustainability side or? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, that's a big, that's probably our number one driver for growth. And it's not just measurement of carbon where we've kind of branded uh, some of the stuff we do as actually the, the where we've got the most traction is providing data in the form of KPIs to a food company who's trying to source ingredients that are meeting certain criteria. Uh, and they've made some big commitment often around carbon, but not exclusively. Some of them made big, you know, sustainability or regenerative commitments. We're like, hey, we're going to buy, you know, a million acres worth of regeneratively grown corn. Um, so we're the ones that come in and say, well, whether it was or was not regeneratively grown corn or not by, by making the soil measurements as part of the program. But then I think where we get the best traction is where, you know, where we've always been grower and rancher focused and everything we do. So we, we usually try to convince the, the funders of those programs, like, Hey, let us provide not only the data for your program, we'll provide maps back to the growers. Usually going to be new data sets that they haven't got before. 
but why don't you also have us do things like compaction mapping for them and just why don't you just throw it in for them and so i think we that usually makes us pretty uh, popular with the growers you get a whole bunch of brand new data sets in many cases for free some cases at a dramatic discount subsidized by the the company we're working with uh but it actually makes those sustainability programs a lot stickier too because the grower starts getting used to data that's valuable to, to him or her like compaction mapping that they hadn't been getting from any so other. So I, I want you to sort of dive into what you do very specifically in a moment, but I want to follow this page point for a second. So as you think through those producers, those growers that have chosen this path, what's convinced them? To be honest, it, in the early days, is trying something new, new revenue dollars. They're not huge, but they're usually, you know, the neighborhood $20, per acre to, to participate in some program. Maybe for some of them, they were already- I'm going to interrupt one more time. Sorry. And, and in the context of, you've probably got some that were like, I'm going to do this, whatever. Yeah. And no. they did it. But th those, those ones that calculated it and sort of said, I'm going to take this step and then I can take another step. I mean, it helped. One of the things in terms of people listening is like, I'm not positive how to make this decision. So like, what what have you learned in this process from people that are making this decision that's hard? Yeah, I think a lot of them start, people who are on the fence, they start with some of their fields, right? So they'll they'll put in- 20%. Like 500 acres or a thousand acres or something? Yeah, something, you know, something like 10 to 20% of their acres. They'll put it in a program to start trying out- and to be honest with you, in general, when I speak with them, their primary motivation wasn't the fifteen to twenty-five dollars that they're getting, but that doesn't hurt. Um, it's mostly start learning. Um, so they're they're trying to figure out, you know, where can they play in these new markets as they as and if they evolve. I think that's the the primary current motivation. And who teaches them? Where, where do they go to to get that information? I think the peer participation in the program is where they're learning. You know, so some of them they're getting information from us in terms of how the various programs are working. Um, but I think this just the sheer fact of participating in the program under, you know, talking with the reps from whatever companies, talking with Earth Optics, um, in terms of what, you know, what are people paying for? Why? Where do they see those markets going? What's involved? How long do they have to commit for? Um, that's probably the biggest one that the biggest impediment to participation is, is long-term five, 10-year commitments involved in some of these programs. Uh, luckily, there's a lot of new programs coming out where that's, that's not the case. And what's the over-under on the people that you've done this for a few years? Yep. So what's the over under on the people who say, I did 20%, now I'm going to do 40 or, or I did 20%, I'm stopping or I'm doing 20%, I'm going back. It's a, it's, it's yeah, statistics are small numbers because so few programs have been going on for a few years, uh, for, you know, for three years, most of them just started last year. Um, but I'd say that the trend is to to growth. People are very few people are, there's a small number that opt out. They say like, no, not for me. It was a hassle. I'm not going to do it. I'd say that's probably about 10%. And the majority stay the same. They don't make a decision after a year, but there's probably a good 20, 30% that up their acres and, and the various. Programs. What are they seeing that? I think just seeing it wasn't a big hassle. And some, hopefully in some cases, they like the data they're getting from us. Uh, and they were only getting on the fields or participating. Like, Hey, I want this on everything. Um, I think that's a small contributor. Uh, in in other regards, like yeah, this wasn't a big hassle, and you know who doesn't want an extra twenty bucks an acre for not having to do too much extra. Yeah. So it takes some of the fear and certainty doubt out of the equation, and it's not it, they can step their way into it without like. I think that's the yeah. world upside down. Yeah, I think that that's a big part of it. Um, could you help everybody just understand very specifically what Earth Optics does? Yeah, we're we're a soil mapping soil mapping company with an emphasis on mapping. So we develop technology that allows us to 
use machine learning to treat a soil sample like it's training data for uh, for sensor data that we carry on side-by-sides or we put them on tractors and then we combine with satellite data sets as well. So we turn a handful of soil samples into a very detailed high-resolution map of, quite frankly, whatever you sampled for. So we do it for fertility mapping, soil health, carbon. Uh, we pioneered uh, high-density, high-resolution compaction mapping, which you really can't get from anybody else. People use that for for making smart tillage decisions and uh, usually saving quite a bit of money on, on tillage. Uh, we're working on doing the same, using the same technology on some of the more high-cost biological mapping that various companies are offering. Uh, so we're working with several of them to use our kind of mapping platform as the way they present some of these uh, biological tests. And some of those tests can run 300, 400 bucks a, a piece on some of these DNA tests that some companies are doing. So that our ability to dramatically reduce the number of soil samples you need to make maps, uh, obviously has a the more so expensive you, test is the better. So me dive in a little bit deeper. So you use ground penetrating radar for the most part? Yep, and electromagnetic induction or EMI. I think people are- Which familiar. is a sort of a sensor that's attached to the equipment and yep. is running in a sense passively. I mean, you're you're going over the field, it's keeping track of everything. Yep, absolutely. Uh, I mean, EMI is really, it's a metal detector is, is really what it is. Um, so you got the equivalent of a very expensive metal detector and a ground penetrating radar. Um, mounted on the tractor, the side-by-side, -side, and that's that's interrogating and scanning the soil down to, you know, about three feet or so. Um, we don't usually use all three feet of that. We usually use the the top foot of data that's relevant. And it's, uh, this is sort of a catalog I am with CNH, or they, uh, the CNH guys are really do this a lot, and other people, it's sort of a... It's a it's a catalog item if you've got a CNH tractor. They, if you've got an Ecola Tiger tillage system with soil command, you can upload one of our maps. Uh, what's, a, what's a cost for the for the grower to, to start doing this? It's about, about three bucks an acre. It's less if you're getting fertility mapping from us or carbon mapping from us. It's, and it's usually about a dollar add-on. And it's a software as a service kind of model. They don't have to pay for the hardware. Don't have to pay for anything. They just get the data they need to, to make their decisions. And do they need a, a, any special data services or anything like that? Or is it most most operations a tractor comes home and offloads? Yep. No, no special, no special data services needed. How many, yep. how many producers do you have? Growers? Oh, I mean, that's a that's a great question. We probably have about um, including that we work with directly and through our partners, probably about 10,000 different producers all throughout the country and a little bit internationally. So you got 10,000 of these sensors somewhere out there, or maybe more, but. No, less than that. Not, not all, very few of our customers actually have their own sensor. They're getting the sensor mapped uh, by either us or one of our agronomist partners. So somebody, somebody comes and they, they hook it up and then they, they move it around. Yep. We're really scaling up the on tractor mounting, but that's a, that's, that's pretty early. Okay. And uh, what, why'd you start doing this? Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a, I could give you a long answer. I'll try one that's a little bit longer than the short answer. Um, I grew up in Minnesota. Both my parents grew up on farms, uh, even though I did it. So I, but I spent most of my summers on one of those two farms. Um, so I was interested in getting involved in, in agriculture for a while. I'm a space physicist by training, kind of split my career in two halves. First half doing basic research in earth and space science. Um, and then I got into leading teams, designing satellite missions for mostly for space missions. And then uh, then more for Earth missions and and sometimes for Air Force and, and other defense uh, departments. And then I got, made the switch over. I really wanted to get involved in technology entrepreneurship. So I kind of left that behind and uh, 
this is now the third company that I've either started or run in the last 16, uh, 16 or so years. So I'm still using a lot of the skills that I learned as a scientist and some of the, you know, the technologies that I was interested in then are the ones that I'm applying now, but it's been, yeah, kind of a slow transition from, from working in, working in space physics to, uh, to now measuring the soil. But my, my wife teases me that I can't possibly get any lower in my career. I started out in the stars and now I'm underground. So. <laughs> well, is it equally complex or what's, what's more complex about it? I mean, the, every, I, I get interested in just about anything I work on, but um, I mean, I'm not trained in soil science at all. I've, you know, learned as fast as I can, but it's a fascinating, complex, uh, complex item. I mean, it's incredibly variable, both physically and, and chemically. There's no, anyone who has a yard can just look out and, you know, you can see the bright green grass where your dog pooped three, you know, three months ago. That's a lot taller than the grass around it. Uh, just biologically, which I'm not an expert in, it's, you know, significant, you can go three feet away and have a completely different microbiome, uh, both, you know, on farmland and in your front yard. And so just the, you know, the fantastic variability, I, I find fascinating and a really significant measurement problem. I think on the, the sustainability side, I got really interested about 10 years ago, because uh, I'm not an expert in in carbon cycle either, but I was leading a team designing a satellite mission to measure global carbon cycle. And I'm, they showed me that, you know, that standard chart that, that that folks show that shows, you know, humans burn about 18 billion tons of carbon every year in the form of fossil fuels. And then it shows that, you know, like 450 billion tons of carbon going into the soil and terrestrial biosphere and about 444 coming out. And I was like, whoa, whoa, wait, let me get this straight. Like there's more going in than coming out. It's like humans burn 18 billion tons of carbon every year, but there's only nine that show up in the atmosphere. The rest, I was like, where's the rest go? And the science told me, well, it goes in the terrestrial biosphere and the ocean biosphere. Then I was like, well, yeah, but like where precisely does it go? And I'm like, well, we don't know, actually. It's just way too hard to measure precisely where it's going. And so just that answer got me completely fascinated. Like, how do you not know? Like, it sounds like it's, I thought this was supposed to be super important, right? Like, I thought this was a really important thing of understanding where the carbon is going. So you like, you mean to tell me like Mother Nature's been keeping up with half of our carbon sequestration without asking her, uh, the, you know, the entire time for last 50, 60 years. And we don't know how it works or where it goes. Uh, and then when I really started digging in, like I realized, I learned that like, I don't know if you guys knew this is a fun like tidbit I share with folks, but that in you know summertime in Iowa, an acre of corn is taking out more carbon out of the atmosphere per acre than the Brazilian rainforest. And, and when you think about it, it makes sense, right? They both have the same exposure to, to sunlight, but that acre in Iowa has got everything it needs. It's got the right amount of moisture in every single yeah. every single bit of fertilizer and you know every component that photosynthesis requires is provided to it. Um, but, but yeah, once you... Uh, the Brazilian rainforest holds way more carbon, right? With all the material in the tree stalks, but it's not taking more out of the atmosphere. In fact, it's taking out less most of the time than, than an acre in Iowa. So just learning. So that, that kind of motivates some of the carbon mapping we're doing. At least a little bit of me is like wants to solve this super hard problem, understanding where the carbon goes um, and yeah, where it's stored and where it's not. And so that, um, yeah, those are just like the many, many aspects that I just fascinated by some of the work we're doing. Do you think, uh, this is a little geeky comment, but that biologists just don't realize they're physicists yet? <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. But I, I, I thought everything was all ultimately physics. It, it all, it all, it is all physics. <laughs> it's sort of an arrogant comment, but. Um, <laughs> and then I, now in terms of back to the production, you, um, you, you sell value just on compaction. 
Yeah, I mean, that's one of the easiest products I've ever developed to sell. You know, I've been been selling stuff at and at some level my whole life, and it's the value proposition is so concrete and clear. Right? Yeah. It, can you say what that is right there? Just that one part. Yeah, it costs you you know three bucks or less per acre, and people are usually getting it right before they're going to make a fall tillage decision. And if you're deep ripping, it's going to cost you anywhere from from twenty to even forty dollars per acre. You know, more when diesel's high. Uh, so we, we give you a map showing you where you do and do not have compaction at a per inch level. And you get a recommendation for if you're going to apply deep tillage, here's where you ought to apply it and what depth you should apply it at. And so you, the, the savings are instant. They're, you know, they average between 15 to $30 per acre, uh, average over every single field that this product's used on by savings and tilling less deep um, and savings and tilling and just skipping deep tillage in certain areas of your field. So independent of whether they've got any conviction on carbon, or have access to markets. Yep, that alone is a is a positive business case. Absolutely, and I, I think regardless of how anyone feels about carbon, I think everyone's pretty familiar that soil disturbance is going to going to lower their soil health over time. And so, pretty much everyone we talk to, regardless on their tillage uh, practices, are, are pretty well bought in. And like, yeah, I'd love to minimize soil disturbance if I can. I want to save money, but I, I understand that's probably not a good idea long term to to unnecessarily disturb the soil. So in general. Uh, we see soil health improvements that, you know, in the areas that on average that result in, you know, measurable yield. We've got a couple of even just two, three year studies where you're getting better yields. We've never seen, we've never seen someone get less yield out of our tillage program than they were getting before. So it's always, it's always the same or a little bit more uh, when we compare it to, to deep ripping everywhere. Garter. I think Carter, we lost Carter for a moment. He's back. I'm right back. I don't know what happened, but <laughs> <laughs> just one of those days. I thought it was you asked me for what the value proposition was, and then he just hung up the phone. <laughs> yeah, I thought maybe he passed out on you or something, Lars. <laughs> yeah, my computer's been crashing on me recently. I've been doing too much chat GPT on my laptop on my computer, and I think the doctor's getting upset. But, uh, but anyway, yeah, Kevin, why don't you jump in? I I, I was sort of walking over. Oh no, yeah, I, speaking speaking of the no, you're not at all. Speaking of the Chat GTP, I mean, what are we seeing? I saw FBN's rolling out their norm uh, or has rolled out norm or whatever on the agronomy side. Do you guys doing anything, Lars, or do you have any future plans to do anything with any of the AI technology, or is it already being utilized to some degree? No, I mean, I'm a big machine learning person. I've been developing machine learning products for. For now, over 10 years, uh, we use machine learning to make our maps. Obviously, that's, you know, it's a lot more simplistic than the generative AI that you're getting that, you know, that will make pictures for you or or that chat GPT uses. But we're, I mean, we're as excited as everybody else from the technology and we're scouring all the different ways that we plan on using it. We use it today already to, our software programmer has been using it for about a month or a version of chat GPT that cleans up their software programming and it in many cases can double their efficiency. Um, you know, so that's probably bad news for, people say it's bad news for software programmers, but the truth is you never get less programmers. You just want more stuff out of them, right? Yeah. Like I've never seen automation result in less hiring, to be honest with you. I always thought it would. And then the more longer I've been in automation fields, like not the unemployment's at as low as it's ever been and it keeps on getting lower. So like, as soon as we automate something, we just want more. We never want, to, <laughs> right? We never are okay with what we got. So I'm sure that I'm sure we'll 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 continue to hire software programmers, which is expecting to produce twice as much as it did before. 
But we're looking at some, yeah, really interesting things, how we can use it. Like one of the things we're going to launch, I think, and as a, as a fun, just little demonstration is uh, people are so confused by the carbon programs and carbon markets. We're training, uh, we're pulling in, you know, the thousands and pages of, I don't know if you guys have ever read a carbon registry, like protocol requirement, but we're, we're talking like five, 600 pages in many cases of just confusing, confusing language on, you know, yeah. what's where, what's allowed. And so we're working on training a chat GPT like model. So you can just ask it simple questions and it will answer you based. And so you don't have to wade through these hundreds of pages of really confusing documentation. I mean, I, I'm super, I, I tried it yesterday. I'm, when you think like at the high level, uh, I'm, I worry that I might, might scare some people, but when you get data, you go from data and agronomist turns that data with combines with localized knowledge and then turns it into a recommendation. I think, you know, we're probably not a horribly long way from the future. And, you know, we're working around the edges of this already on how can we turn data trained, you know, training a tool like ChatGPT on what's worked. How can you wait like high yields with the recommendation that was made prior, you know, prior to prior to the growing season, wait the ones that worked out really well, and then just train these generative AIs to make human language recommendations on what to do. So you just upload your data files and it'll give you natural language recommendation on what you ought to, what you ought to be doing for fertility and for planting. Um, you know, that's, that's going to be coming. We're, we're, we're working on that ourselves at the very earliest stages. And so I think that's just one of the many examples people will come up with on how this is going to kind of transform what we're doing and in agronomy and farming. Hey, Kevin, to build on this, what we've been looking at, I think you saw an early version of this. We took all of the 4,000 companies we've looked at and loaded them. We did this about a year ago, Lars, uh, loaded them into OpenAI to create. Internally, we've got a Slack channel where we can sort of probe back through those 4,000 companies. We took all the Zoom calls and all their pitch decks and all that information and loaded it in. And the thing we've been thinking about is can we then extend that to our portfolio companies like you? So Earth Optics is one of our portfolio companies. And then can we team up with Benson and, and uh, Bex who've got practices data? And can we provide a utility to uh, early adopters, farmers, where they can say, I think I'm doing, want to do regenerative. How do I think through this problem? What things I should be looking for and, and connect at our level, we're thinking like connect people in the network to sort of say, have chat GPT say, hey, based on what you're asking for, you really should talk to Earth Optics. And then, and then use to facilitate that connection into new to, to speed up the adoption of new technology so that people can more easily talk to, talk to it and sort of get a think thought of it without being sold to. No, that's, that sounds very similar to what we're trying to do with the carbon you know, the carbon training we're doing right now, where you can ask it simple questions like, hey, I want to join a carbon program. And then it can say, well, are you interested? Are you willing to do a long-term commitment? If you say no, it will then it will then constrain to the ones that, that might better work for you. Yeah. There's those, those are like almost the easy things in terms of these things are so almost readily equipped to, to handle these type of problems. It's fascinating stuff. Well, it's something we often talk about when we think about ag tech and Kevin, this gets a little bit to the adoption phase and it gets into the, the who's adopting. You know, you said, Lars, that people are realizing this is not as complex as they thought it might be. And I think with any new technology, 
it's true that people are slow to adopt the technology because it's hard to know what they don't know. Right. Um, and so I think it's important from a technology standpoint, and we say this to all of our startups, is make it easier for people to adopt may be more important than coming up with newer technology. I mean, it's a, um, farmers have a lot on their mind and they don't need more confusion. No, I mean, that's what, I think this technology is gonna be, gonna be huge for farmers because it just takes some of that, like you said, that not knowing what you don't know, it takes some of the perceived hurdles out of it and being able to just use natural language to ask questions and get simple natural language answers, I think is gonna make a lot of things in ag tech uh, a lot better. Yeah, I mean, one analogy there. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just saying how how long? Crazy question. I mean, how long before the agronomist jobs in trouble? Uh, Well, again, I don't even know if the agronomist jobs would be in trouble. We'd just be asking a lot more of them, (laughs) right? So, I mean, somebody's still going to have to be, you know, figure out how to load this data and configure it. Maybe, probably, even make sure the the farmer's data is being kept private and not being shared completely. everywhere else. I suspect, just like I mentioned with the software programmers, I don't know if the agronomist job is at risk of that now they just become the guide on how to use this technology most effectively. And we're I, expecting way more from our agronomist. I've seen the, yeah, I've seen the jump from uh, 3.5 to 4.0 or whatever it is on the chat GTP, you know, on the, I don't know what the latest one they're working on now, 4.5, but I've seen the jump was was massively significant in what type of scripts uh, were put out by the AI and they were, you know, tons more accurate. I seen the, uh, did you see that Carter where it showed what the test scores were for like the LSAT or the, the bar or any of the other bigger, yeah. you know, test uh, the MCAT or whatever it may be. Yeah. On the different versions, you see the, how big the jumps were in the test scores when they, you know, when each new version, I guess, rolls out, it seems to be nuts. So. Yeah, I think it, it, there's an, analogy, a, a, an example from Uber. When Uber first came out and was in San Francisco, I, the people who passed on Uber as venture capitalists and the people in San Francisco said the total addressable market for taxi is uh, something like $400 million in San Francisco. And so we don't need a new technology to eat into that. Well, a few years later, they found out that the the market for Uber plus taxi was 700 million. And so 300 million of demand was not being satisfied because it was too hard to access the taxi. There was something about the price and convenience. And so there were people that were not using taxi because of the things that Uber made easier. And I think that where somebody like Kip Tom is using absolutely the best central casting agronomist, giving him the best advantage on his acreage, uh, other other farmers don't have that kind of access. And to Laura's comment here, I think you all of a sudden you're you're going to normalize that capability so that more people have access to the very best of the solutions. Uh, and that's if we look at how patterns of a, a technology have evolved in the past, that's that's how it happens. If it's a real technology, if it's going to be something really a game changer technology, that's how it operates. And 
Lars' comment about he said, "Hey, it's making programmers better." That's like what's referred to as Copilot is is one of those products where it, I'm trying to code this and it gives you the Python code and a similar way, just like it's writing code for you, it could write uh, agronomy scripts. It could it could write other procedures, standard operating procedures. If uh, if a CPG is looking to more directly source products, it'll hey, this is how you should procure it and here are how the contracts should look. And you, all those kinds of things are going to, I think, make it easier to disintermediate Cargill, uh, disintermediate people in the supply chain and, and really get the best quality people working with the best quality people. Oh, no Which is, it's exciting. Um, and it, it relates a little bit to what, I think we've brought this up, where Chipotle was having a little bit of a challenge in carbon offsets. And so people get stuck at, I'm moving my beef production. How do I reduce my carbon footprint? Oh, it's going to cost more. Um, where I think uh, uh, Travis Potter had suggested that they change the feed conversion ratio on some of the beef and they produce beef that maybe had less fat, which isn't important to Chipotle because they're not building steaks for a steakhouse. And so I think some of the opportunities where people are concerned about compaction and climate, that actually, if we do this correctly, um, we're gonna find that there's waste in the system yeah. and you can produce a better quality product for less with more profitability. And at the same time, you're you're probably reduce the climate impact, just which might be I'm using less nitrogen or I'm, you know, a bunch of things that actually help your input costs. Um, that that that's a visible once you increase the visibility by having these tools. I think one of the points that we're kind of zeroing in on here, and which you know, kind of just occurred to me while we've been talking live is probably one of the most, from a tech investor standpoint, one of the most impactful things that chat GPTs of the world might be enabling is, is just dramatically compressing that adoption curve, right? I mean, yeah, a new technology, it enables a, a new best practice that gets established through early adopters, right? And then it's a very long time, usually. And that's the slow part is all people, people decision-making, right? Um, people's evaluation of changing to a new best practice, but like, if we can, if we can make that process really easy through, you know, natural language chat GPT like interfaces where you can just ask simple questions like, Hey, I, what's the best thing for me to do, you know, do for me to maximize both my yield and my carbon credit value. And then the computer can just tell you with a tailored for you recommendation based upon what the actual relevant best practices from real data and from relevant farms, like you could get, you know, you can get new practice, new technology adoption happening almost instantaneously instead of having to wait these, you know, 10, 20 year cycles that it often takes in many industries to, yeah. to adopt new new practices. Yeah, I think the, and this is you and I need to catch up on this because I think it's, I'd like to figure out maybe how to, for the farmer, give them a, some commonality of entry point where they can maybe access multiples of these language models to sort of answer it so that they can get some commonality of thought and that it remembers the questions that they've asked and some persistence and a few things like that. If we can figure out how to do that, it, it may help the adoption curve of, of this entire process. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. There's some common things that we all need to work on together that 
to benefit the farmers that not just separate optics is working on, but that was relevant for every single tech company. So yeah, we should follow up on that. And Kevin, the thing that worries me is, is that the, sometimes these technologies seem too hard for people. When the lesson is once they start adopting it, they're like, oh, wait a second, this is a lot simpler than I thought. <laughs> it's not always the case, but there's no reason to have this technology have slow adoption when actually it's easier. Um, and I'm not sure how to sort that out, but the the feedback. From yeah, I, I would. Agree. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I mean, you know, I think it just takes. I think, in general, farmers, like I've always said, are secondary loop observers, and I think you have to have certain, you know, brand ambassadors or certain people out in rural America that are respected farmers, like you mentioned, Kip Tom, or you mentioned other. There's many, many other you know, great farmers and great producers in, in every region and every county. But when you have those key people start to adopt and start to use those things, you know, I think that spreads. The problem is, though, you know, each farmer is somewhat in competition with their neighboring farmer because, you you know, it, it is tricky like that. So everyone kind of views that as you are, you are in a bit of competition with your neighbor. And, you know, a lot of times people don't want to divulge where they're, uh, how they're gaining an edge. So, it, it gets tricky on the adoption side. Yeah, I think you just gotta yeah, part of my makers out there. I, you know, one thing that'd be fun is all those FFA kids did a great job bringing hybrid seed into the market in the twenties. I think uh, I more than that, more than enough of them have enough capability to get on GitHub and download. Um. GPT interfaces and and build out large language models. So it'd be fun to sort of start drawing some of that attention in and bring that same sort of same way hybrid seed in the twenties came into market through uh, through the kids. It might be interesting to help bring some of this new technology and training into the market. Yeah, I would agree. I think that's where it'll probably start. Kids bringing it home, talking to their dad about it, and, and showing them how they're using those tools to. To, to make better decisions so yeah cool Lars I know you got a meeting coming up and we got one you want to tell everyone how they can check you out further or yeah I'll, go I'll, to learn more absolutely go to earthoptics.com uh we make it easy to, easy to spell and find and yeah click on the links and we've got um, a range of emails that you can click on there and phone numbers to to give us a call to to get in touch with us Heck yeah, cool. Yeah, we got a great Instagram feed too. People should follow us. All our techs are we got a photo contest every week. The tech who takes the best photo every week gets uh, I think 50 bucks or something like that. So they keep us with uh, cool. a great set of photos for our Instagram page. So you you know watch these guys at work all throughout the country, all throughout the world in some cases. Great. So Kevin, yeah, I'll put perfect. a plug in for the fund again. Can I do that? Yeah, hell yeah. Yeah, so we uh, we keep people keep signing up for our, the ag tech fund that Kevin and I are, are working on together. You can download the app on I select fund on uh, either go to our website or download it on Apple or I, Android. We we had somebody sign up who's a doctor in Iowa who said he he all of his patients are dealing with metabolic disease and having a hard time and fighting sort of the CPG companies on what they eat. And he loves the idea that he can invest in the kind of technologies that might make it easier for farmers to make more profit, to use better technology and maybe improve the food system, you know, more protein dense 
And he also farms 5,000 acres on the side, which I thought was a hell of a thing to do just on the side. And that's about 500 head of cattle. And so it's sort of neat to think that, you know, he's out there taking care of people, he's out there growing and, and he's thinking about how, how to get closer to the technology to make better decisions that both increase his own profitability and, and also help his patients. So that's sort of a lesson learned so far with one of the people that signed up with us recently in the fund. Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, I'm excited. I think we're doing, I think we're doing good things for everyone. You know, I think it's a, a win-win on all fronts. Like you said, I think trying to help, you know, gain better adoption just by the, you know, bringing this to the forefront, allowing people to invest the way some of the higher level people invest. And, and a lot of people in rural America don't get that chance to be, to be early at, in some of these things. So, yeah, I see it as a win-win across the board, so I hope uh, others are as well. Yeah, there are a lot of people across the world that seem to be getting stuck in how to get forward in life, but um, we have a lot of people who pay attention to ag tech who wake up every day and go build something, and they really can't not do it. And so if we can help make that a little bit better, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, and I appreciate you guys over there and your team that you guys have for uh, allowing us to be a part of it and, and kind of look behind the curtains and allowing other people to do the same. So, yeah, thanks again. Well. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Yeah, for sure, buddy. Uh, Bars, thanks for your time. You still see Todd every now and then? Oh, yeah. Well, I see him virtually every day, you know, often more often than Oh, I'm damn. Like. <laughs> That's no fun. He's down there cheering for those Razorbacks, I know. So, indeed. <laughs> Kevin Carter, yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. It. I appreciate it, buddy. Talk to you. All right. See you. Thanks, right. everybody. Bye.